You're listening to The Retail Perch with Shekhar Raman and Gary Hawkins. We're going to discuss industry challenges and opportunities in grocery retail, AI, current and upcoming trends, and so much more. Welcome, everybody, to uh, uh, this edition of The Retail Perch. Um, Shaker is unable to be with us today due to some last-minute travel, but I am very fortunate to have our <laughs> lovely Stephanie Doherty with me as uh, co-pilot today. So, Stephanie, welcome. Thank you, Gary. It's been a long time since I've been on the side of the mic. So, <laughs> happy to be here. Oh, great. And... Um, uh, so we want to welcome today Chris Kocheck uh, as our guest, and I think we're going to have a really great conversation today. So Chris is the author of Any Insights Yet, um, does a lot of work around developing insights, and I think this is particularly important for you know certainly the grocery industry, fast-moving consumer goods retail industry today as retailers and brands are grappling with, you know, an ever-growing amount of data and needing to create benefit from that data. Um, uh, Chris is also the founder and CEO of uh, Gallant Branding uh, and is based in Austin, Texas. So, Chris, welcome. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. And uh, Chris, why don't we uh, turn it over to you for a couple of minutes to go through, uh, you can introduce yourself, sort of who you are, your background, and what led you to focusing on the wonderful world of insights? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I got my start in advertising at BBDO New York. Um, I'd come out of grad school from UT Austin. And as, as luck would have it, I was introduced to Andrew Robertson at BBDO New York, who's the head of BBDO Worldwide. And, um, and he set me up with some interviews with a bunch of folks internally. And, um, and then Tracy Lovat, the head of planning at BBDO, said, well, I think we'd like to keep you here if that's okay. So, um, so I, I got to stay in the planning department. And, um, and that's when, when I got to you know, kind of get introduced to this world of strategy. Uh, the approach at BBDO was behavioral planning, which is an interesting, I don't want to call it a subset of planning, but if you've ever heard of account planners, you know, the idea with behavioral planning, as I understood it, was a person's behavior is the best predictor of their future behavior than if you just ask them about their attitudes or their beliefs about something. So if I if I want to know more about you, I could say, Hey, uh, if I if I gave you a hundred dollars, what would you do with it, mm -hmm. right? Versus if if I said, hey, last time you got your tax return back and you had a hundred dollars, a thousand dollars, whatever it was, what did you do with it, right? Yeah, because you'll hopefully you'll go into storytelling mode and you'll tell me what you did with it. But if I ask you the hypothetical, what would you do with it? You'll say, oh, I'd give some to charity, mm -hmm. I'd do some of this, I'd do some. the aspirational self really starts to come mm -hmm. out. Yeah, and that's not necessarily true. So, so I learned a, a ton from uh, from Tracy and from all the wonderful people at BBDO, and then I got recruited out to GSDNM also as a strategic planner, uh, and then I started my own firm about three years later, um, about uh, gosh, ten or eleven years ago, uh, when my daughter was nine months old. I thought, why not leave the security of a well-paying <laughs> job and start something new. Um, but about that same time, I had uh, a couple of other things happening that I felt like it was it was the time. So uh, I was invited to give a talk at a at TEDx uh, TEDx Youth okay. Conference, 
Um, and then my first book, The Practical Pocket Guide to Account Planning, was coming out. So between those things, I thought, okay, well, there's a lot of good synergies between all those things. So let's see what we can do. And and with Gallant, we work with you know 70% of our clients are CPG. Okay. Fast moving um, food and beverage brands um, in and Austin is kind of a a mecca for these brands now. And you probably heard uh, a lot of great uh, food and beverage brands coming out yes. of Austin. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, that's that's how I got into it. And, and Insights is the newest book because the first book had like a two page chapter about Insights. Mm-hmm. And students at UT Austin and and some other people said, oh, I wish that chapter were longer. So I said, well, let me work on a second edition. I'll make that chapter longer. And then that chapter grew and grew and grew until it became its own book. <laughs> neat, neat. So I, I, Chris, I'll, I'll sort of start, start us off here with a question. How would you or how do you define an insight versus other learning that comes from out of data or, or information? Yeah, well, so my definition of an insight uh, is a metaphor. It's that an insight is a constellation. It's a constellation of data points, human truths, observations, trends. It's all of those things. But if, if all you have is a single data point, other people can get that data point too. Now you're back to square one. So the insight combines things in a unique way to solve a problem or help you get to higher ground for like a creative campaign. So a lot of times people will say things, um, you know, hey, I, I've got an insight when they really should say, I have a data point, <laughs> right? But that's not very sexy. That's not very exciting. <laughs> if you're if you're in a room with a bunch of people or you're sitting with the C-suite and you raise your hand and say, I'd like to share something. Oh, please. You know, I'd like, I'd like to share a, a data point. People might lean in, but if you say, I'd like to share an insight, everybody's going to lean in. Yeah. Right? So I think there's been this proliferation of the use of the word insights when people really probably should be using other words. I don't take anybody to task for that, but as I talk about in the book, it's it, it's it's used so often. Mm-hmm. Um, and the thing is, insights take time to build because if you're going to connect the dots between sometimes disparate data points, right? right? Or, or, you know, some things that, that don't quite, you know, connect with like, well, we got the data over here. We've got some, some human truths that we're seeing over here, but there's just like this tension between them. What's going on? That's the job of the strategist uh, or of the marketing team is to connect those dots, even though they may seem like they're not connectable. So, so I, I guess what I'm hearing from you is insights is you define it or think of it really involves uh, i want to say some creativity with looking at all this different you know data information behavior etc and bringing it together in uh, in a sense in a creative way to gain an understanding that wasn't there before right as opposed to just looking at a bunch of numbers or data that you know may or may not say something Absolutely. I mean, it may sound trivial to, 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 you know, go two words against each other, but some people say, I found an insight. Some, I believe you build an insight, right? You can find the first breadcrumb on the breadcrumb trail that will lead you to kind of connecting all the breadcrumbs and creating that insight. But it is absolutely a very creative, iterative and collaborative process. It's a much more active process when you think about building something with other people yeah right? 
bouncing ideas off of them, bouncing insight statements or, you know, saying, hey, look, I've got all these data points. Um, you know, what, what, what's the connective thread through all of these versus I found this one thing. Now, again, you might have a flash of insight when you find sometimes a piece of data or data. I always say data, but you're saying data. So I feel like I should say data. Um, Either works. <laughs> I'm trying to think what I say now. I don't know which one I use. <laughs> but, you know, when you find that one, one, one data point, it can spark something in you. And it can say, oh, wait a minute, now let me go investigate these other things. Can I see a pull through here? You know, and if you can find that pull through, I sort of liken it to the secret sauce, right? If you just have mm -hmm. one data point, like I said before, anybody can find that one and do something with it. But if you combine them in a unique way, or the three of us could, could be sitting and looking at the exact same things, but because of your experiences, Stephanie, your experiences, mm -hmm. Gary, you're going to connect the dots in different ways. And none of those ways are any less valid, you know, and now, now how you can sell it may be less valid. Okay. And that is a very creative part of it is that articulation at the end. How do you, how do you get to that billboard size statement of 10 or 15 words or fewer? Yeah. To, yeah. to get so, people. Chris, excited? do you have a recipe that say a retailer could follow to, create these insights it's all well and good what we're saying here but yeah he's got google analytics he's got you know whatever his service providers giving him like how does he how does he make this beautiful insight yeah to absolutely. share with people so there there are seven techniques i talk about in the book um and and so you could consider that sort of a recipe to follow mm -hmm. if you will different techniques mm -hmm. now again one of the things i try to emphasize is you don't necessarily need an insight to make great creative work or to come up with a big idea, okay? But the process of, of working on a recipe like this or, or using these techniques will get you much, much closer and you'll be much better off than if you'd never tried in the first place, right? So it's a little bit like that expression, if you aim for the stars, you'll land on the moon mm -hmm. kind of thing. Yeah. So, so one of the techniques that I love to use is uh, you know, keep asking why. Why are people doing these things? In the book, I talk about not not in grocery per se, but there may be some application here. But in the home improvement space, okay, people come in. Um, they it's a little different in grocery, but in home improvement, they don't know what words to use. I would imagine some people who are first learning how to cook, they don't always know yep. what words to use either, yeah. or what ingredients they should be using. And so when you come into the home improvement space, you're talking about, yeah, I need this little thingamabobber. There's a, there's a whatchamadoo I'm trying to replace at home. And, and so, you know, the associates at the store level, they've got to decipher, you know, what's going on there. So that's observation number one uh, around like home improvement. So same thing with, with grocery, um, you know, you've got aspiring cooks or chefs or people who are trying to expand their horizons. How can you help them, you know, decipher the ins and outs. I mean, I, I cook a little bit, but when I start getting deep into it, I'm like, I don't know what half of these techniques are, right? <laughs> yeah. So, so, so that's one thing. Um, now, again, that's a, that's one observation point, right? Another one. I'm going to be bouncing back and forth between grocery and and home improvement, huh. but but the other dots in the constellation that I talk about in the book with home improvement are you end up having project creep because people don't exactly know what they're talking about. The associate tries to help them. Then they get some stuff, they go away. Then they got to come back because they forgot to d explain that 
I don't know, their their toilet was right next to their bathtub and they needed a special tool to do something. Same yeah. thing happened with grocery, right? This is the story of my life. Yeah. You're working on something, <laughs> you're cooking something, you're like, oh, I don't have the garlic press or I don't have the this, right? You know, to make this happen. So then, so then there's all these different things. And, and the biggest one that I end up talking about in the book, as far as how how a home improvement space could could really build on something here, is that people come in with their phones for a home improvement project to show them to try to solve the problem is I don't know what this thing is, but I want to show it to you right here because I don't yeah. have the language. But we don't do that with almost any other category, right? If you want to go get photos developed, you don't have to, you know, sit there and bring your phone out, right? Yeah. You can just upload stuff right away and get things done that way. So, so there, so that's kind of a big like, oh, okay. Yeah, that, that that's a really interesting observation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you take these observations and you connect them together until you have this idea, this sort of you know, category disrupting idea that says, well, okay, wait a minute. So if a picture is worth a thousand words and it takes people a thousand words to describe their problem, why not start every project with a picture? Why not have a portal yeah. that allows you to upload your project photos and then get help from the community and you become this kind of hub? Now that's a that's a complex value proposition. Yes. Because yeah. Home Depot and Lowe's, they say, hey, you know, we're a we're a giant product warehouse. Yeah, but people are coming to you for the know-how as well. Right. right. And right now there's all these disparate systems. You go to YouTube if you want to watch a tutorial on how to fix XYZ. Yeah. Right. Sometimes Lowe's and Home Depot will make the videos. Hey, you could do this. But there's a huge ecosystem of other people out there making that content. Right. Why not bring it all under one umbrella? You yeah. Know? No, that, that's, that's a great observation. So in your work through your agency, uh, does that often involve, um, you know, focus groups or speaking with consumers and so on to gain whatever information, insights you can from them directly? Absolutely. So, I mean, data can get you a certain distance, but, you know, like everything, the data can lie depending on how you how you slice and dice it and the way you look at it. So you've got to know how to kind of interrogate it or, or you know, get it to speak to you and come out with certain things. So but but then again, if you talk directly to consumers, they'll give you little white lies, too. Yeah. So, you know, people are guarded. They they don't necessarily want to show their vulnerability or what they really think about a situation. So you've got to be able to get past those little white lies and, and talk to them, which actually is a good segue into the, the second one of the second techniques as part of this recipe. I'm going to keep using the recipe metaphor now, okay, so, good. which is um, creating conflict among people in a focus group. Okay. Gentle, civilized conflict. Okay, <laughs> not throw chairs across to each other. <laughs> not throwing chairs. <laughs> but, but what you're trying to get at with conflict is emotion, because at the end of the day, um, you can try to appeal to the logical brain and the ra all the rational reasons to believe. Um, but what moves people is emotion. I mean, the word motion is built into emotion in yeah. the first place, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and so, so figuring out how to tap into that is really important. And when you create kind of a conflict scenario, if you ever remember watching the real world, the reality television shows or things like that, 
they would just kind of put little little grenades into into the situation, right. emotional grenades. And so one of the things that we did uh, at Gallant for a brand called Benito's, we were conducting some focus groups. The CEO at the time had said, Americans don't think beans are very exciting. We need to overcome that. And I wanted to start by challenging that premise in the first place. Is that is that really true? So mm -hmm. during our focus groups, we asked people, are beans boring or exciting? You tell us. And like 70% of the respondents in the focus groups would start waxing rhapsodic about how exciting beans were. They were <laughs> flavorful. They carry so much flavor. There, there's, there's so many different colors and varieties and shapes and you can use them in anything. You can put them in soups. You can put them in salads. You can put them over chips and quesadillas, you know, all these different ways. And I'd never thought about beans quite so deeply before. But but when when people get excited about something like that, you know you've hit on an emotional touch point, and then you you see where that goes. You know? Yeah, that's 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 a great call out. That's a great call out. And uh, yeah, you know, I my history experience, I go pretty deep in uh, customer purchasing data and so on in retail, and you know was amazed years ago at bringing to light that discrepancy between what people say they do and what they actually do right mm -hmm. and, and many times there's a big gap there between those two things oh, uh, yeah. uh but no i i love the idea of of injecting uh emotion into mm -hmm. that focus group into those discussions because i completely agree with you that's a way to really start bringing up those heartfelt feelings yeah, and if you there's a very simple question structure you can use, which is just put the word or between the two things, right? Do you like this or this? And yeah. all of a sudden, pe people will take sides, right? Yeah. And then they'll defend their side's position pretty strongly. Now, you can reverse that and you can say, talk about it from the other person's side. You know, it's a, sort of a classic therapist or psychologist. Yeah. Technique. I want you to play back what that person just said. Some things might pop out of that that are very interesting. Yeah. One of my favorite examples uh, with food inside the book is, and this is actually the kind of the convergence of, of big data and then um, human observations and, and research and development of products. But, you know, if you were to go ask somebody 10 or 15 years ago before this big campaign came out, hey, do you want to get like a wasabi flavored uh, chip? Do you want to get, um, you know, tikka masala chip? or, you know, spicy dill pepper chip, something like that. Yeah. Probably people would say, no, I don't think there's a market for that. Yeah. It's just, that, that chip flavor sounds a little weird. I don't think we're going to be able to sell enough units. Yeah. <laughs> I would have said yes to all of them. <laughs> you would have said yes to all of them. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because again, the research and development people might be sitting with some other people who are running the numbers, crunching the numbers and saying, I don't see that there, there's no precedent for it. Now there's right. no precedent because nobody's ever been brave enough to do it because they're looking for, Hey, we need a 10 X return on this, right. on this, yeah. on this product launch. So, so then what was so brilliant about the Lay's campaign, right? The Lay's do us a flavor campaign mm -hmm. uh, was basically they turned the whole thing into a contest 
And by allowing people to pre-vote on the craziest flavors, they could get some data, the market data that said, okay, you know, this is a plausible, viable product. But what's was even- Was it chicken and waffles? Was that Chicken the... and waffles is one of them, yes. <laughs> so I thought I remember that. And what's even more interesting about it, now this was something that we uncovered in our in our research with with various um, you know food brands over the years. There's a there's a little thing that that's not quite so obvious, which is when you buy an unfamiliar bag of chips, you're more likely to buy a backup bag, your safety bag. Hmm. Of of the regular flavor. Of the regular what? flavor. So wow. if you're Lay's, okay. If you're Lay's. The strategy, maybe they didn't know this going in. Maybe this was like, whoa, we just hit a gold mine. We're very lucky with this. But like when you go buy, um, you know, chicken and waffles or something that's a little risky, you're a little nervous about, you don't want to go home and then not have a bag of chips mm -hmm. to enjoy. Right. So you end up buying double the number of bags to play it safe. Hmm. That's fascinating. <clears throat> That really is fascinating. So, is you, know, you mentioned you do a lot of work for for CPG companies? Is a lot of the work focused around uh, uh, products and flavors, new products, et cetera, et cetera, or more driven from how do we sell more? Well, it's a little bit of both. You want to increase those velocities as much as you can. You want to bump up the basket, you know, and and get people to to, to purchase more with every visit that they come to the store. Um, but with um, but but at the same time, uh, you want to give people something new because everybody wants something new, right? Uh, every Mintel report that comes out typically in the CPG space, flavor is the number one driver. One of the biggest mistakes that we see brands do, whether they're even white label brands or they're, um, you know, big, not big brand names, but startup brands, they make that logo super big because they see that Lay's has a super big logo. Pepsi has a super big logo, but those guys have been around for over a hundred years. Yeah. Right? So the name is established. You can make your logo bigger once you've built that reputation. But when you've got a brand new product, emphasize the flavor as big as you possibly can. And don't worry about how big the logo is because people are going to buy on flavor first and foremost, typically. Yeah. Hmm. Wow. Um, so uh, again, you mentioned you do a lot of work for CPG brands. Um, I'm assuming you've done some work for different retailers in the past. Uh, what have you seen retailers interested in? What, what areas? Uh, when you say what areas are they interested in, do you mean... So, so you know, again, simply uh, in potential insights into their customers that may inform like uh, product assortment decisions, or you know, it could be private uh, private label product design, or how do we get more of these customers shopping in our store? Yeah. So, I mean, we're working right now, for example, with People's Pharmacy here in Austin. They're a regional, you know, retailer, uh, but they have, uh, you know, multiple parts to their to their business. There's the pharmacy side, there's the wellness supplement side, and then there's the, the food side, because food is a form of improving health. Yeah. So one of the things we're working on with them is to, again, better understand their customers, you know, what's driving their decisions uh, to choose one product category over another? And should that product category expand? You know, yeah. should they be doing that? So, um, but then there, there are sleeper hits, you know, there are certain opportunities where, again, you, you, 
you may have the data driving in a particular direction, but sometimes all it can take is a single comment by somebody to really open your eyes yeah. about, about a situation. So uh, we were talking um, with People's Pharmacy um, about some sleeper hits, you know, in terms of moms, uh, you know, just recent mothers who have just had kids and, you know, they're very concerned about what they're putting into their bodies. Um, and so, you know, there may be a, a sleeper hit there in terms of a whole set of product categories that people should be putting in the forefront in their marketing messaging. Yeah. So hmm. that, that would be, that would be one example, but it hmm. is a combination of data and, and really actively listening um, to the conversations people are having in store, going up to them, customer intercepts. Yeah. When they're Chris, likely to have their guard down. <laughs> you touched upon this earlier, but uh, what role would you say surveys play? Do you think surveys are a valid measure or a valid way of getting some of these or building your insight recipe, your insight cake? <laughs> yeah. Um, somebody has a sweet tooth. No, I was just kidding. <laughs> I always think of lasagna or pasta, but no, that's, that's good. The insight cake. Um, so... So surveys are great. Surveys will help you get to st statistically significant data, right? Mm -hmm. you, you probably don't want to bet the farm on, on, you know, a handful of interviews with people. Okay. So, but what the interviews will do is that they'll help guide your questions in the survey. They'll also help open up what some of those uh, responses should be in the survey, right? Because here's the, here's the tricky thing about surveys unless you make everything an open-ended response, you're gonna be creating the answer sets for okay. the people. You can have a little other section at the bottom mm -hmm. that says, oh, none of these were the right answer that I was thinking of, so here's here's the other. But but surveys, you know, they're meant to be done pretty quickly. Nobody wants to sit with a survey for 10 or more minutes. Right. So you've created the universe of answers, which means you've already closed yourself off to one of those aha moments when someone tells you a story and you're like, I never would have thought of that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah I'll, I'll, go ahead. So, so oh, you go ahead, Gary. I was just agreeing. <laughs> uh, so uh, Chris, you know, a lot of talk around AI tools today, right? Especially mm -hmm. relative to data and helping companies understand all that data. Uh, you know, a lot of talk around artificial intelligence today and, you know, every day reading about more and more AI tools that are available to industry, to businesses, to help them sift through, you know, this growing amount of data every company's collecting. Do you see a role for, and if so, what is that role for AI relative to developing insights? Yeah, that's a great question. I actually recently wrote something for Fast Company. Uh, the title was AI won't give you insights, <laughs> but these three techniques will. Uh, in fact, AI, per the beginning of our conversation, you know, it, it doesn't even define insight the way that we're talking about it here. So it'll it'll confuse, you know, the synonyms for insights, data, truths, things like yeah. that. Um, but what you can do, because what you're trying to do is you're trying to get AI to think counterintuitively. That's that's one of the big things right there is, is don't just reach for the low hanging fruit, find something that's an outlier and, and make it study that in conjunction 
with what the main data is telling you as well. The problem is a lot of the, the, the big data that, that we have access to, some of the patterns are obvious. Mm -hmm. You don't necessarily even need the data. You, you could just, oh, moms are time poor. Dads are time poor. I didn't need a survey to tell me that. Right. Right. Um, so, so, you know, taking, you've got to use AI to try to crunch the data that you have and give it prompts and ask it things or, or, you know, work on a model that will help you find what would to our eyes seem like irrelevant outliers mm -hmm. and make those outliers become part of the overall equation that then makes you say, huh, this is new, different and powerful. And then you're still going to have to, you know, dig in on it. I, I wouldn't bet yeah. the farm on that right away. Still need to validate some things, but that's, that's one way to do it. But you're right. We're, we are, we're drowning in data. I was talking with Joanne Ciarino from UT Austin the other day, and she was saying, you know, in the cold war days, the, the problem was different than the, than the post nine 11 days. It, and now there's so much data and so many different departments that you're just like constantly trying to sift through it. And right. the, the challenge, you know, with 9-11, as has been reported, was that it was there. The information was there, right. but but it just, it, part of it wasn't shared. And then part of it was just digging through mountains of other stuff to find the when and the where and things like that. So, um, so I think that you can use AI to probably crunch those numbers faster, but you still have to know what to look for. You still have to tell it, look over here or look over there. And that's where the still at this point, the human intervention is still going to be. Thank God. <laughs> Thank God we're still necessary. For now. For now. Yeah, for now. <laughs> uh, well, th this has been uh, fascinating. Um, Stephanie, any, any I do have a question. Thoughts here? Okay. Um, I saw a reference and you've mentioned AHA. Ahas. Do you mm -hmm. have any favorite aha insights that you've helped clients come to that uh, you'd like to share? Well, it's tricky because the insights are the things that are underneath the campaigns, right? Okay. And sometimes the insight can can be mirrored by the campaign on Ace Hardware, which again isn't grocery, but um, you know, in the campaign brief, we talked about at ACE paint is personal. Now that was part of the larger, the overall brand ethos at the time was compared to the big boxes, right? Where you might wander mm -hmm. around a warehouse for 15 minutes and not find a person to help you. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, the entire model of ACE is the helpful hardware person. Coming right. over Ace to you. This is the talking. helpful hardware place. That's right. That's right. <laughs> that jingle still stays after all <laughs> yeah. these years. Um, and so, so, you know, the idea of paint being personal, there's a lot of ideas that can come out of that. Now, the way that the creative team interpreted that and the creative concept that ended up winning out and becoming an FE finalist, actually, um, was. Uh, creating a kind of a relationship metaphor where somebody walks into the store and says, I'm looking for, you know, a shade of purple, not this kind of purple, not purple, but this kind of, because there's so many shades of purple. And then there was like this lineup of bachelors, 
all different shades of purple. And then, you know, she sees, she locks eyes with one of them and she says, that's the one I've fallen in love with that one. Right. And then it's like that kind of that creative envelope is the way to bring out to life. Paint is very personal. You fall in love with the color, but also at ACE, we make paint more personal by getting to know you and things like that. So, you know, the insight has to do a somersault into the idea. And then the idea makes a somersault into the customer's brain. Yeah. So that you, your brand stays top of mind, you know? Yeah. No, that's, that's great. Great example. Uh, so Chris, I know your book, uh, any insights yet is available on Amazon. Yeah. Uh, for any of our listeners that are interested in getting it. Um, uh, how else would, uh, should people, uh, reach out to you or contact you? What's the best way for somebody to get hold of you? Yeah, there are two great ways. One is LinkedIn. I'm, I'm on LinkedIn. And then another one is I have a website called chriscocheck.com. Last name is spelled K-O-C-E-K.com. Um, and there's the, uh, the light bulb newsletter, uh, where you can sign up and every Thursday I, I create the newsletter. I create it slightly before Thursday because it goes out Thursday morning at seven o'clock in the morning. But um, but every week I identify one, a, a piece of creative that inspired me, two, the thoughts and ideas that it sparked in me, and then three, a quote that's made me a smarter strategist. Hmm. So you can, you know, devour it in two to three minutes each week and let it marinate in the back of your mind for the rest of the week. And it can influence your work. Um, but I wanted to make that as a companion to the book because uh, now again, I, I think of it as ideas, inspiration, and maybe sometimes there might be an insight in there, but again, insights take time to build. So yeah. in the meantime, here's some ideas and inspiration on a weekly basis that can help your brand, whether you're a grocery store or any business, because the the ideas are transferable across categories. Okay, terrific. Cool, Stephanie. Any uh, any last thoughts? No, I think I think I'm good. It was great to meet you, Chris. This has been a great conversation. Thank you for accepting me instead of in the place of Shaker today. <laughs> well, thanks for thanks for all the great questions. Great <laughs> as well. All right, Chris. Thanks for uh, uh, being with us today. Great conversation. Make sure to join us every Monday and connect with us at The Retail Perch on Instagram and Facebook. And if you have any questions, feel free to email us at theretailperch at birdseye.com. Until next time, this is Shaker. And this is Gary, signing off. 